On the 11th of November 1918, after four long years of war, the guns finally fell silent. The level of death and destruction was unprecedented. More than 15 million people had been killed in what was a horrifying new type of industrial warfare. Now, 100 years on, what does the war mean to us? And how has the act of remembering those who died changed over the intervening decades? I'm Ronald Leesk, and for this special edition of the University of Edinburgh's Big Idea podcast, I'm joined by three academics with a keen interest in these questions. Professor Ewan Cameron is from the School of History, Classics and Archaeology here at the University. Dr David Kaufman is also from the School of History. And my third guest is Jolien Mitchell, a Professor of Communications, Arts and Religion in the School of Divinity. Many thanks to you all for coming along today. I'd like to start with the question of how the war and those killed were remembered in the immediate aftermath of the conflict. Uh, Ewan? Well, I think um, what we see at the end of the, the First World War is a greater drive to, um, to memorialise in a very formal sense. Um, so, for example, um, war memorials, you see a much greater uh, level of enthusiasm about funding and building war memorials in the aftermath of the First World War. I'm talking about the United Kingdom here, um, than we've seen at the end of earlier conflicts. I mean, even here in Edinburgh, we can see memorials to the end of the Crimean War, the Boer War, um, but there's an almost an exponential increase in war memorialization in a stone form um, in the aftermath of the First World War. And that was capped off, I suppose, by the idea of a Scottish national war memorial um, up at the, at the castle. Um, which in some ways was quite a controversial um, idea, but was opened um, in, in 1927 to great fanfare. And there are a whole host of local uh, war memorials all around Scotland in village squares and workplaces and, and various other uh, locations. Yeah, I suppose that in some ways reflects the the very um, the Powell's Battalion and other aspects of how recruitment took place. As, as you say, you go to Waverley train station, there's, there's plaques there, you go to... Uh, social clubs, people joined up in these different types of groups. Was that that an important aspect, do you think, of the the way that the war was fought? I think it's interesting that, um, uh, as uh, as you mentioned, the the sort of the preponderance of uh, memorials for the First World War. And um, I think it's also interesting to note that what you get are memorials built for the First War, especially in this country, in France um, as well. And, And then usually what gets tacked on in the aftermath of the Second World War is usually a sort of a, a smaller number, sort of another plaque of those who fought and died in the Second World War. And that's really an interesting contrast to the experience maybe outside of Western Europe, where the, um, where the, sort of the narrative is a little bit more complicated with regard to the, um, to the First World War. The First World War is something that for some parts of Central and Eastern Europe is um, is remembered in a different way if remembered at all. Because for some countries like um, like Russia, which um, at the end of the last year of the uh, First World War um, has a, a, a democratic and then a Bolshevik revolution, and the uh, sort of the the First World War becomes just part of a wider continuum of violence. Uh, but it's problematic to remember a war in which Russia is actually defeated. But for other parts of um, of Europe as well, with the collapse of the uh, multinational empires, you get the emergence of new nation states. And, um, and so th- you have memorials which serve a dual function. They serve a function of not only remembering those who've died, but also they serve a purpose in 
helping establish these new nation states, legitimizing these uh, political communities as well. And so, for example, for a state like Poland, which emerges after 123 years of, um, of partition, it's got soldiers who fought on the side of Austria-Hungary, of Germany, defeated, and Russia as well, also defeated, small number of volunteers, largely from North America, who, uh, who fight um, with the French. But um, there's a real problem. So how do you actually remember this war when your soldiers took part in it largely defeated. And so what they do is they use the, um, the war as sort of a, a part of a, a, a wider, greater war, where 11th November is just really um, a date which sort of marks the, um, the beginning of um, a sort of a new series of, um, of, of wars to establish various successor states. And so uh, you get a sort of contested narrative, um, which is, um, is something which sort of plays out really still to this day. Jolyon, is that contested narrative uh, restricted to places such as Central and Eastern Europe? Or do we see that happening here in Britain as well? I think the contestation happens here as well. I mean, the over 50,000 monuments were built around the UK soon after the First World War. And there were often debates about should they be placed in the parish church, on the village green, uh, on the wall? Should they be in stone? Should they be in stained glass? Should they be in a book? So there were debates, local debates, as well as national debates. Sometimes these would become very... Uh, agonised because it was tied up with people's grief. They were people whose names meant a huge amount to each person there, and therefore where the name was left was very important. So these were places of contestation, as you mentioned, controversy regarding the Scottish Monument. But that happened across across the whole UK, really, and you can see it. You can even see it embedded in Downton Abbey, where they debate about where they should put the where they should put the monument there. And there was, there was there was class issues here as well, wasn't it? it was, I think um, Herbert Asquith's son he was um, killed and repatriated, and that was one of the reasons that there was a, a concern amongst the, the the general staff that they couldn't have a situation where where poor soldiers were being buried in, in France and Belgium, but the, the rich and those who could afford to repatriate could bring their their sons back. I think that's an important point, isn't it, to think about and many of the bodies were not here and therefore the absence of the body was something which was, was very hard to cope with and also led to heightening of the debates. So uh, one thing that, um, that you, you get in the, uh, in the period after the First World War as well is really sort of an army of unknown soldiers that, um, that, um, that in Britain and France where you get um, um, uh, an unknown soldier who's sort of brought back um, to Westminster or is buried under the Arc de Triomphe to symbolise those who, um, who, who were buried in the battlefields or for those maybe up to half of those who actually died in the First World War on the British side at least um, where no remains could be found. And so this is a very important symbolic meaning. But again, this is something which is contested on a, on a local level but also on a national level. So, for example, again, to use the example of Poland, um, how could they choose one of the uh, soldiers who fought on one of the various sides in the First World War? So what they actually do is they uh, is they choose um, some uh, a Polish defender of the city of Lwów, Lviv, Lemberg in um, in in East Galicia, which um, uh, who died actually fighting in a war between Poland and the West Ukrainian People's Republic in November of 1918. And it's it's this body which is. Um, actually buried in the in the Saxon palace in the center of Warsaw in 1925 to symbolize you know the uh, the Polish uh, the Polish nation but of course this is incredibly problematic for 
Poland, who has, which is a multinational, multi-ethnic state, because there's a degree of anti-Jewish violence which is associated with the, uh, the, the Polish capture of um, Lwów in November 1918, but it's also a war against the Ukrainian population, the Ukrainians who are the largest uh, ethnic group in the, uh, in the Second Polish Republic. So the, the sort of the building of legitimacy of the Polish state through their choice of the unknown soldier has problems and has issues. Ewan. I think the important point we're trying to emphasize here is that that there's a very Western understanding of the 11th of November as the the unambiguous end of the the conflict. As David has just highlighted, it's much more complicated in Eastern Europe, but it's also much more complicated closer to home as well. I mean, we think about Ireland, uh, for example, which, of course, the whole island of Ireland was part of the United Kingdom at the end of the, the First World War. And um, the the First World War was seen as an opportunity by Irish nationalists to disrupt that um, constitutional relationship. And the end of the war in in Ireland is the the beginning of an opportunity for Irish nationalists to to fight a a war of independence and then subsequently a, a civil war. Um, after after 1922, and that the island is is partitioned, six counties remaining part of the UK, and and 26 setting up a, a new state. And there, of course, the the memory of the war is 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 very different. And it, it's it's taken some years, perhaps really until the the peace process, the Northern Ireland peace process, before the whole island of Ireland, and particularly well, both nationalist and unionist traditions have come to some sort of ability to to remember the war outside the prism of of the the nationalist conflicts that have uh, gone on in Ireland over the over the intervening period so i think it's much more complicated as David has highlighted, but but those complications sometimes strike closer to home than we than we sometimes think. That's a fascinating point, isn't it? Thinking about the memorialisation of 1916 Somme, the involvement of the Irish soldiers in Somme, but also the Easter Rising 1916, and how those sometimes juxtapose as contested memories as well. And the veterans who come back to Ireland as it you know becomes a free state, um, you know, sort of you know even just questions about you know what happens in terms of you know soldiers who fought for one state, one empire, who find themselves then resident in a completely different state? What are the obligations in terms of the state that they fought for for their pension, you know, and in terms of the identity? So this is a a state which is sort of, you know, one which is fought through a war of decolonization, through a revolution, and yet they were off fighting for the imperial power. And so it's an incredibly um, problematic uh, situation they actually come back to, and this is something that actually impacted them on the rest of their lives. Isn't that interesting to think about the competition and meaning around... I mean, if we go back to the Cenotaph, for example, part of its popularity, as I understand it, it was meant to be a temporary object, was that you could invest any meaning in it because it was almost an anonymous object. And then the church, the state church at the time, the Church of England, wanted to try and assert meaning, so they did embrace the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and placed it in Westminster Abbey and gave it a plaque that gave it particular meaning that they could own in a in a more explicit way than perhaps the cenotaph. Yeah, I mean, but the cenotaph itself was deliberately uh, designed, you know, from sort of the Greek heritage of an, em- an empty tomb, which has no single uh, religious meaning as well. So, which is of course incredibly important for multi-ethnic, multi-religious British Empire itself. And so, you can see why this was uh, so important. But also, I think that the uh, the location of it itself, you know, outside the Foreign Office, um, you know, uh, Whitehall, that the Prime Minister has to go past there on the way from Downing Street to the uh, Houses of Parliament. That again, what it does is sort of it links back to these questions of 
the uh, the reason why the war itself was fought. I mean, I do think that's interesting thinking about which resources people return to when they're heartbroken or grief struck. And there are some arg- arguments that, well, maybe it led to a sort of a shattering of some of the traditional beliefs. But there are other people who say, well, actually, what happens when people are really sad is they reach back, either to chivalric pictures of knights of St. George, or also perhaps the Christian tradition that they were brought up with that they left, because they're trying to make sense of what's happened over the last four years. We've discussed how people dealt with loss and remembrance in the immediate aftermath of 1918. Uh, Did these attitudes change as we enter the 1930s and the prospect of another war appears on the horizon? Well, I think it does. It does change. Um, Many historians have emphasised that that the violence continues in in Europe, Um, maybe down, maybe 1925, the the Locarno Treaty of 1925 is maybe a, a, a a point at which things settle down. But then as we move into the to the 1930s, um, and particularly the rise of, of fascism in, in Germany, and by 1935-36, there's an increasing realisation that another global conflict might well be on the way. States are beginning to, to militarise. Even, even Britain is beginning to you know, pick up its spending on, on armaments. And certainly by 1937-38, there's perhaps more of a widespread expectation that, that another global conflict is on the way. So I think that inevitably changes the way that the wartime generation perceive the experience that that they went through and and what that meant in the in the longer in the longer term but I guess that's different in in different European states as well isn't it David yeah I mean so the the, sort of the international situation is I think important so um, and uh, as you and you just mentioned you know the sort of this 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 generation that fought the war this generation which uh, you know was largely young men um, who either volunteer or, you know, are fighting as a process of uh, being being called up as a sort of part of mass conscript armies, and so they they are largely civilian forces. There is this mass mobilisation of entire societies. So it's 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 sort of it's not the professional element. It's not people who've necessarily chosen to have a career, and uh, in the army in the military who then you know go back to civilian life. Who then find, you know, the um, the sort of the uh, to be one of many groups who are disappointed by Lloyd George that the the land is not necessarily fit for heroes, that um, that they become parents themselves, that their children grow up, their children become of military age, that um, the sort of the overarching you know political situation in interwar Europe between sort of the challenge of communism and the sort of the reaction of um, fascism, Nazism, sort of leads Europe towards a sort of a, a more uh, threatened situation that you know that the, the question about well well why is it that we fought this war this war against what Prussian militarism this war to um, establish national self determination you know this war which has uh, been fought against autocracy and uh, and uh, sort of multinational empires to sort of establish a new sort of international system and I think that it's sort of it's it's really problematic that they see that this this the, they fought for has either you know in Western Europe been threatened by a new conflict or in Eastern Europe you see the sort of the, um, the steady advance of um, uh, either communist or uh, Nazi regimes. You've got the division of, um, of Eastern Europe really largely by uh, 1939 Nazi-Soviet pact, which sort of, you know, ensures that um, anything that was achieved by um, fighting the First World War has really just basically uh, been for nothing. 
What about Germany? How does a country that's lost the war and been forced to accept a harsh peace settlement at Versailles in 1919 deal with remembrance? David? They, of course, have a very problematic relationship with the First World War in terms of memory because the majority of those who fought and died are buried either in Belgium or northern France. The uh, the victory that they have are in, in Eastern Europe, and so the main memorial that they have is um, is this strange crusader castle which they build um, near the uh, the battlefield of Tannenberg, the one great victory that they have in 1914 to defeat the uh, the Russian invasion, which is used basically as a sort of a cult of personality for Hindenburg. He's buried there when he dies against his will in uh, in 1934. And there's some sort of, you know, some Nazi argument that, you know, Hitler is the unknown soldier, you know, the man who is made by uh, the First World War. And I think that it's very much the case that, you know, he is someone and the Nazi movement itself is still fighting the First World War, that, you know, Hitler is temporarily blinded by gas when he hears the news of the uh, of the defeat in November 1918, takes him completely by surprise. And he basically, you know, he recasts everything that he sees in terms of his life, um, you know, and sort of the, 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 the Nazi uh, movement is basically all about making sure that they win what they consider to be merely an extension of the First World War. They sort of see it through, you know, the internal enemies, you know, making sure that there is no second stab in the back, but also autarky as well. So that, you know, the the blockade which helped starve Germany in the First World War, that they will make sure that they can actually fight and win as sort of another version of the First World War. And that's incredibly important to uh, Hitler and uh, the Nazis. And yet, and yet within the the German tradition, there's also the art, artists who might be interrogating what's gone before. I think of someone like Katy Kollwitz and the famous piece, which is a response to her second, I think, second son, Peter's death early in 1914. And she spent 18 years wrestling with trying to create a piece of art to represent the death of her son and finally in about in the mid-1930s she created two separate large statues which she placed only a few yards from where Peter was buried and they're called grieving parents and they are they're 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 both heartbreaking but also they raise questions about what's just what went on in the first world war and perhaps also the the move towards militarization in in Germany at the time. Yeah there's the, the Nazi narrative is one of glorification of war and so you know Memorials like that are explicitly, um, you know, removed from uh, from Germany um, because they're sort of they they go against um, the the idea that you know the Nazi state is about expansion. The Nazi state is about the glorification of uh, of of war. Of course, many people nowadays tour the battlefields in places like Belgium and France, often to look for a headstone or a name on a memorial of a relative killed in the war. The Allied cemeteries tend to have individual headstones whilst the German soldiers were often buried in mass graves. Uh, why is that, David? I mean, the, part of the reason why they, uh, the, uh, the German dead are largely buried in, in, in mass graves is because, well, you know, the, the countries that, um, that, the, uh, that the soldiers are buried in are the, uh, the countries that they invaded in 1914. And so it's very much just, um, you know, not wanting, or these countries like Belgium and France don't want to sort of have places to to glorify uh, the German dead, and um, and the sort of the the Nazi project is one really of making sure that uh, that Germany can project herself again as a great power. So, 
1919 uh, during the peacemaking, where she isn't even uh, given uh, a right of response. She, you know, she can she can write a sort of a written submission to the uh, the terms of peace which are dictated to her. She's treated not as a great power, but um, but through the uh, sort of revision of the um, of the Treaty of, uh, of Versailles, which happens really uh, under the Weimar Republic as well, to the extent that um, most of the uh, non-territorial clauses have been removed before Hitler even comes to power. And then there's sort of the territorial revision of the uh, of the peace treaty. These can all be combined, really, um, with these uh, public displays, um, you know, coming together at Nuremberg sort of to show that uh, that Germany has um, you know moved on from the uh, from the humiliation of the first world war but also the humiliating treatment that sort of you know meted out to her by the allied and associated powers let's bring our discussion up to the present day uh, how do you think we here in the UK view remembrance and do you think it's changed markedly in the past 20 or 30 years Jolyon? I think yes, and I'd be interested to see what my colleagues think as well, but I think it's it's been affected significantly by cultural expression. So you can look, for example, at a film, which was, of course, a musical in the 1960s, Oh, What a Lovely War, was clearly a satire, putting a very large question mark about what happened in the First World War. This was futility and madness. And you can see that as a whole cinematic tradition that's also found in things, everything like Blackadder uh, goes forth over the trenches through to perhaps even most recently just come out last week or so, Peter Jackson's extraordinary film of They Shall Not Grow Old, which again raises questions. But also what's, what's significant, I think, about that film is it takes you into the world of the soldier in a way that has never been happened before and so perhaps represents another move in how we remember what's happened. Ian. I, I agree I, th- I think that's right I think the the different forms of, of cultural expression about about the war are really interesting what, what worries me very slightly about the war memory the way that it's that it's cropped up in the last four or five years over the over the centenary is and there's nothing new about this, but the way in which the war is sometimes used um, for fairly overtly political purposes. Um, I mean, this is fairly clear in the in the United Kingdom. Even in Scotland, there's a Scottish exceptionalist interpretation of the war, which I find very worrying. I'm not sure what sort of real purpose that that serves. But if you think about the political conflicts that have gone on, political debates that have gone on in, in, in the UK over the last four or five years around Scottish independence, around around Brexit, the memory of the First World War gets gets dragged into into those debates. Um, um, I think nineteen fourteen was a very was a very pregnant uh, was a very pregnant year in that in that respect, particularly in Scotland, but 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 elsewhere. But as David and Julian have been uh, mentioning, that that use of the war Politically, is 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 nothing new, really. But it it does strike me as something problematic in the way that we're remembering the war at the moment. Yeah, I mean, David, do you think that's the case? Well, I mean, again, to sort of you know, take the perspective of um of of Eastern Europe, this is also um something which is is nothing new, nothing new about uh, the uh, the politicized use of uh, of memory. And so, in Eastern Europe, in in Russia, former Soviet Union. The uh, the great day of um, of uh, memorialization was the 9th of May, which was Victory Day over Nazism, and so it's about the defeat of the uh, of the sort of the the Nazi threat, um, and uh, and you can understand why this is sort of you know a, uh, a a glorious justification of you know the Stalinist system, 
that you know all of the uh, sort of the terrible upheaval of the 1930s can be justified because uh, when the threat comes as it does in June 1941 eventually the uh, the Soviet system proves itself to be um, up to the task and this is something which has been challenged and changed in the uh, really in sort of very recent uh, in the very recent past so for example in Ukraine um, from I think 2015, it's the case that um, that the poppy, which um, has a different connotations, shall we say, in Eastern Europe, uh, over the use of that flower, but um, but the poppy has been used by uh, by Ukraine um, as the symbol of uh, of memory and memorialization. So what they do is they take something from the Hague Fund, which is how it um, originally uh, was actually employed, and they use it to emphasise the Western nature of Ukraine, as opposed to the um, using the symbol of the ribbon of St. George. It's sort of a, a black and uh, orange ribbon, which is sort of the uh, the symbol of uh, memorialization in uh, the Russian Federation, um, which again is still focused on the victory over Nazism in the uh, in the Second World War. But what you get is sort of is, is sort of the way that Ukraine begins sort of to try and sort of break away from sort of the influence of um, of the uh, of of Russia, um, and by projecting herself as being Western, she sort of she takes on some of the symbols of memory and memorialization, and sort of you know none of these are sort of more important, more powerful than the poppy, which you know doesn't have any cultural resonance in Eastern Europe, and it's just been taken on, as I say, as a way to actually sort of show the difference between Russia and Ukraine. Ewan. I think another another point that that perhaps might be coming through a little more strongly, maybe particularly through through art and and literature, is, is a greater sense of the First World War as a global conflict. Um, I mean, we think primarily about about the Western Front, but you know, David has reminded us about about Eastern Europe. We've we've emphasised the role of, um, of of empire contribution in the in the British. Uh, case, but the the theatres of war in in Africa and in the and in the Middle East also ought to be remembered. So I think that sense of the First World War as a as a global conflict is is maybe something that is slightly more constructively perhaps creeping into the into the memory. Julian, the, the last twenty years, do you think it's when we see these debates over, for example, in Britain, the the colour of poppies that people wear, is that a, a debate that's based on, on logic and reason? Is it based on misunderstanding of what the red and the white mean? I think clearly it varies from person to person, but these memories are being used as well put in so many different ways, often to drive political political genders. Um, and it's interesting talking, for example, to a number of uh, groups, uh, Muslim groups, who have real uh, anxieties about poppies in some circumstances because it's identifying with a certain kind of colonialism. That's how it's, it, it, the symbolic resonance of a poppy is not to remember people giving up their lives, but it's to, to think about perhaps forms of colonialism. So in a way, the poppy carries with it all sorts of luggage into different communities. It strikes me that India's often forgotten contribution to Allied victory is particularly scandalous, given that more than a million troops from what was undivided India served overseas during the war. I wonder if that's because newsreel cameras were more often sent to the Western Front, where only a comparatively small number of Indian troops served, whereas their part in the defeat of the Turkish Ottoman Empire, where 700,000 Indians served, isn't so well known. 
Ewan? I think there were quite a number of, of colonial um, uh, battalions and, and regiments who, who did serve in the Western Front. But it, but it is, you're absolutely right that it is true that their, their history has been, from a, I think, and again, from a Scottish and British point of view, that, that history has been, has been elided. Um, you know, we think about the, the myths of the First World War that we, that we emphasise things like the Bantam battalions or the PALS battalions or locally recruited uh, regiments. We tend sometimes not to, to think about those, those wider, um, the wider diversity of the British Army that fought on, even on the Western Front before we you know, even attend to these wider uh, global theatres of, of war. Yeah, and just a point made earlier about think how these memorials are actually paid for. So, you know, if they're local memorials paid for by local people who lost their relatives, then, you know, that's going to be the focal point of the memory. And so that's why the uh, the Cenotaph did play such an important role as something which is sort of symbolic for the entire empire. Julian. If you look at the history of art and cinema regarding the First World War, a lot of it tends to be Eurocentric and there's a lot of absences. There's absences in terms of ethnicities and different groups. You can see that everything through from All Quiet on the Western Front in 1930 to, to more recent films, uh, as well as in art as well. But that may be changing uh, and it's interesting to think out how that changes as well and what's the significance for our remembering the First World War now and whether it again raises question marks about how we respond to uh, cultural tensions today. So as we try to maybe draw some conclusions here, um, what would each of you say, and it's obviously such a vast topic, you don't want to make meaningless generalisations, but is there one thing that you you would try and tease out, whether that's in terms of education, we're here at the universities, is there something that young people should perhaps remind themselves, remember that are they aren't perhaps um, aware of, you would like to see a little bit more of? What, what sort of thing would you... Uh, draw out and highlight as your your sort of one thing to to take from this. I suppose I mean it's it's nothing terrifically new and nothing massively revolutionary, but it's just to um, to to think of the war as as you and says as a global conflict that you know there's we sort of we tend to sort of you know focus on you know 1418, whereas the war itself really starts in 1911 with the Italian invasion of Tunisia. It doesn't really finish until 1923 with the signing of the Treaty of Lausanne, and um, and you know so there's that the Turkish reaction to the um, sort of the uh, the attempts to impose a peace in the Middle East, and um, and so there's this this greater war that you know November 1918 um, is the signing of an armistice. It is not what happened, uh, and not not really important really. For, for other parts um, of the globe, and in other ways, it has sort of this great symbol and this this great meaning of um, you know sort of sort of this idea of victory for democracy. But then you know it is this thing of maybe if you're if you're white, if you're European, and so there's a very quick reaction um, against um, against what happens in Paris in 1919, when the idea of um, national self-determination of peoples, this Leninist and then Wilsonian concept, is dashed because Wilson himself is um, from a, an American political tradition, uh, which is essentially racist and, and doesn't actually live up to his high ideals. Ewan? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think to try and approach the the First World War um, from a 
intellectually from a critical point of view, not to not to make it uh, an intellectual monument. Um, we still have questions to ask about the First World War. We don't know everything about the First World War, even though sometimes we, we think we do. And to get away from some of those um, uh, orthodoxies and and verities about about the war. It doesn't mean that we're dishonouring the war dead by by asking serious historical questions about it, even about very basic things like the chronology um, or the, the the scope of the of the conflict. So to try and move away from um, maybe national exceptionalist uh, interpretations of the war and to to try and view it slightly slightly more broadly. Angelina. I do agree with that. And building building on that, it's interesting thinking about how collective grief and mourning can lead to certain kinds of collective memories which in turn can be dangerous memories which can in turn lead to further forms of violence so learning to remember wisely is actually a creative and important act well it's been a fascinating discussion and i'd like to thank you all for taking part professor ewan cameron dr david kaufman and professor jolene mitchell all from the university of edinburgh I'm Ronald Leesk and this is the Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh.